at chapter 51, beginning with verse 9, as we continue our series through Isaiah for the fall. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. It is in partial answer to that cry, O God, that you have called us in this place. It is in partial answer to that cry that, Lord, now we have this, your word, here before us in the language we use every day because you want to be known more. You want us to know that you know us. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would strengthen us in our inner being. You would grant us courage in our inner being to hear you speak. Protect us from error, Father, we pray. For we pray in Jesus. In the second part of Isaiah, which begins with Isaiah chapter 40, the first 39 chapters record for us, basically, Isaiah's ministry in 35 or 40 years in Israel, a ministry that is bracketed on the one hand with his encounter with Ahaz and bracketed on the other hand with his encounter with Hezekiah. Both encounters are sparked by and motivated by and driven by Isaiah's own encounter with the glory of the Lord in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. What is stunning about that first 40 years of ministry is two things. One, the message was the same from beginning to end, that our hope is in the king of glory who reigns, not in the kings of men who come and go as the grass of the field. But there's something else that seems to remain unchanged, and this is part of what Isaiah's message shows. And that is that the people of God have an uncanny ability to steadfastly forget and lose sight of the glory of God. For such a people, what hope is there? Chapter 40 begins with the answer to that question. The comfort, the comfort, the comfort of God's own steadfast faithfulness, which will out, which will out steadfast our faithlessness. It's a glorious message, and yet one that we seem slow to hear and slow to metabolize, which is a big word for digest. Read with me Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9 through 16. Awake, awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? 
Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a, made in, made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die And go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, You are are my people. Brothers and sisters, this is good news to us, his people in the 21st century. It is especially good news for us this week. Any of you who have been following anything outside your own narrow circle know that our nation is in tumult. Some of it real, some of it imagined. There are protests, and there are protests about protests. Of course, the most recent set is that set of protests known as the NFL protests started however long ago, just over a year, I suppose, by that great quarterback who shall remain unnamed. That involves taking a knee, which it didn't involve originally, but involves taking a knee during the national anthem at the opening of games to protest, to hear them speak of it, the continuing problem of systemic racism in the so-called land of the free. The rationale, while we rightly honor and celebrate the life of freedoms and justice guaranteed to the citizens of this great land symbolized by the flag and the song, we should remember that not all of its citizens enjoy promised bounty of such freedoms and such justice. The counterpoint to that is protests led by him who shall not be named against the protesters. You can protest all you want as long as I don't see it or hear it. Don't accuse or blame or disrespect me or my great country and its symbols. It's dizzying, isn't it?
And that's just one set. Never mind all the other sets. But here's the thing. I'm not here, to, I'm not interested to talk about today the relative merits of one side or the other or the lack thereof of either set of protests. But I do want to raise a question. What is a protest? What is it that sparks protests? Whether they are protests like we see advertised on the news or the protests that happen in our community or the protests that happen in our own hearts, in our own homes. You have to remember that protests are far more common than we think, especially if we so include the so-called silent protests. We protest racism. We protest disrespect for the flag. We protest high taxes and corruption and legalized abortion and police brutality and brutality against police and domestic violence, just to name a few. We protest bad food. We protest overpriced food. We protest cafeteria food. We, process, we protest processed food. We protest McDonald's. We protest Chick-fil-A. We protest the right to smoke and chew and go with girls that do. We protest the absolute absurd injustice of our silly and clueless parents by stopping down the hall and slamming the door and then opening it to be sure it was noticed and slamming it again and blasting our music. Not that I ever did that. We protest our oppressive spouse's efforts to control and manipulate us. We protest our co-worker stealing our lunch and our boss's unreasonable deadlines. We protest worship styles and hymn selections and nursery policies and staff performance and productivity and staffing decisions. I've just gone from preaching to meddling, I'm sure. You can come up with your own list of the things that are worthy of your energy and focus to protest. And if you are coming up blank, just scan Facebook. You'll find ample opportunity to protest. Like, 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 sad face, angry face. Of course, none of this is new. This is not unique to us. The Israelites protested the lack of food in the wilderness. I mean, you talk about bad cafeteria food, they had a bad. I love Keith Green's song about this. Banana bread! Manna burgers! They protested the lack of water. They protested the lack of leadership. They protested the failure and the foolishness of leadership that got them trapped between the Red Sea in front and the angry Pharaoh behind. 
They protested years later the lack of a king like the other nations have. Even as years before, they protested the invisibility of their God and demanded that Aaron make for them a God like the other nations have. They protested the foolish call to go into the land and go in and take the land from giants dwelling in heavily fortified city. What fool would think that a people like us could take a people like that? They protested Moses and Aaron's oppressive and arrogant and exclusive claims to leadership. Who died and made you boss? We didn't vote for you. What gives you the right to say this, this way and not that way, this time and not that time? We demand a share. We demand a say. Indeed, our proclivity to protest goes all the way back to the garden. We protest God's oppressive rules and designs. And then we accuse Him for being at fault because of the people He put in our lives. All protests, understood on their own terms, that's key, really are understandable and reasonable. The problem is, many do not account for all the data. Many have forgotten or have lost sight of or are not privy to some key elements that change things. There may be important terms, there may be important conditions, there may be important circumstances, etc., that are being left out. It's a cry of an individual or a group that, A, a protest is a cry of an individual or a group that, A, something is not right. And B, that there is or must be a better way. And C, someone must rise up and take action. Please, someone. In any given protest, one or another of these facets is at the fore, although they're all in play. Either we see most clearly someone screaming out, something's not right, something's not right, or this is not right, or that is not right. Sometimes we'll see something like this, there once was, or there is, or there could be, or there must be a better way. It doesn't have to be like this. Or it could be just... Someone help, someone listen, someone hear our cry and send help. Protests and counter-protests and counter-counter-protests and protests counter-counter-protests, whether on the national community, neighborhood, household, roommate, or marital levels, are often premised on incomplete information, misperceptions, 
and misunderstandings. Which is why it is wise to always bear in mind the warning, methinks you protest too much. This is what's going on here in our chapter, in our verse, verse 9. Beginning in verse 50, chapter 51, the Lord has reminded them, if you, give, if you remember where you came from, if you remember what I've done, this is what will happen. Listen to me, you who know, verse 7, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. And the Israelites hear it. Oh, that's not the way it is now. But I can't wait for it to be that way. Oh God, rise up and act. Verse 9, awake, awake. Come, Lord Jesus, act now. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, because you've just told us the arm of the Lord has not grown short. Oh, won't that be nice if I can see it again? Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord, and put on strength. Awake, awake, as in days of old. Oh, we remember the stories of generations long ago. In verses, the second part of 9 and 10. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, which is Old Testament language very well known for Egypt? The powerful one who is destroyed. Who pierced that dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea that trapped us in front and actually made it not a sea, but a pathway to our salvation and liberation? The sea wasn't the barrier. The sea was the way. And it was also the defense. You remember the story. After Israel had passed through, they turned around. And the very sea through which they had passed on dry land became the graveyard of Pharaoh. They weren't trapped. They were redeemed. Oh, verses 9 and 10. Awake, awake, if you were to act that way again, oh, then we will come home with rejoicing. Then we will return, we'll come to Zion. Everlasting joy will be upon our heads. It's not that way today. But if you were to act tomorrow the way you acted yesterday, wouldn't that be grand? Sparked by a painful awareness of our present circumstances while being reminded of what once was the case, what could possibly be the case in the future, if only someone with the power and the authority and the position and the resources would stand up and take the situation in hand and do something. And so the disparity between our present circumstances and what we imagine or have been told what once was or could be 
sparks us to cry out, O Lord, arise, wake up, and act. It's interesting to look again at verses 9 through 11. Do you see what's happening? They are reminded of the past, and they long for the future. And they're drawing the conclusion that wherever and whenever God may, in fact, be working, it is not here, it is not now, it is not in this situation. I cannot tell you how many times I have held open this book and I have read from it or I have summarized from it its teachings and had people look me in the eye and say, that was great then, but pastor, you don't know the kind of marriage I'm in. You don't know the kind of struggles I'm facing. He may have been active then and he might be active sometime again in the future. But where is he now? And so notice this. While verses verses 9 and 10 look to the past, and verse 11 longs for the future, the Lord himself answers in the present emphatically. I am... I am. And just for those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John, this is the Old Testament theme that John is picking up on when, Jesus, when he has Jesus repeatedly saying seven times, I am, I am, I am. Because the comfort of the Lord is I am, I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. Those was and will be's are true. No less than the I am. I am. I I am the one who comforts you. I am that one. I know who I am. Do you know who you are? I am here. I have not left you. That's not what I do. I have not abandoned you. That's not what I do. I, I, I can't do that. I have not forsaken you. I can't. It's not in my nature. There are things that it is impossible for the living God to do and leaving us and abandoning us and forsaking us are some of them. I am acting the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, our comfort is not a special gift or a special act of God, but a meditation on on who we are as those who bear His image, as those, as those who bear 
His name. We are the objects of His unchanging affections. And when we remember who we are, our eyes become clearer to recognize who He is today in this place, in this circumstance. Because who we are, for we are who we are because of what He has done. But it's also important that we remember that the people around us are who they are because of what He has done. Notice this. So who are you that you are afraid of them who die? Who, who are you that you're afraid of the Son of Man who is like grass? This means a lot to me because our yard um, is really bad. I think we might have one blade of grass and all weeds. But as one of my former neighbors said, that's all right, Dan, it's all green. But there is this spot in our yard that is this sort of migrating patch of death. I don't know what happened. Is I think I, I, I might have spilled, some, oh, I spilled too much fertilizer, and so now it's just working across the yard. I thought fertilizer was supposed to give life. So, who are you that you are afraid of men like that? It is important, brothers and sisters, that we remember together and recount together the mighty works of God's steadfast love recorded for us in Scripture and in church history and even in missionary testimonies and newsletters. It is important. But brothers and sisters, it is vitally important that we in this room, as we gather on this Sabbath Lord's Day to fellowship and worship together, as we did during the service last week, but also as we gather house to house on Sunday and throughout the week, that we recount to one another the evidences of His continuing presence with us. Of His continuing mighty works of His steadfast love in our lives and in one another's lives. Because it's so easy for us to lose sight. We find ourselves frightened and discouraged and needing to protest, not because our God has left us or has stopped acting, but because we have become distracted and so have lost sight of and memory of Him. And so we don't know how to recognize the evidences of His presence among us. Brothers and sisters, this is what sets gospel fellowship and gospel friendship apart from your run-of-the-mill friendship and fellowship. Gospel fellowship and gospel friendship is not just hanging out, but it is proclaiming and embodying the mighty works of God's steadfast love in the present 
and naming it as such. Most often these reminders are welcome and refreshing, but I will tell you, sometimes they are not received well. Why would that be? Because even as we were just talking about in Sunday school, because the presence of the Lord at work in our lives to accomplish His purposes often runs counter to what we want or believe to be wise and reasonable. That can't possibly be the case because if that were the case it would mean to go back to the story of Jehoshaphat that we would have to just stand still in the midst of this great threat and watch the salvation of the Lord but I want to do something in other words the comforting reminder of God's presence with us often as in this case carries with it a slight edge, a slight edge of conviction. Having become distracted ourselves and having lost sight ourselves of our loving Father, we have accused Him of abandoning us. So I, I am He who comforts you. Who are you? Have you forgotten who you are? In this circumstance, the objects of his great affection, the agents of his great work. Just like Israel, we have been distracted by the sweet lies of our age. If God is good, why does life feel so bad? The assumption here is that goodness and grace must always feel good. The corollary to that is, the corollary to that lie is, if it feels bad, it must be bad. That twinge of conviction feels bad, and so it must be bad. And since God does not do bad things, it must mean that God has abandoned me and His promises. But... What if the difficulty is actually a part of God's good plan to rescue us from ourselves? You remember here that Isaiah is, Isaiah's ministry takes place just before the exile. And so what he is saying is largely lost on the Israelites until later when they find themselves in exile. Man, that's a painful episode in Israel's history. Hey, do you suppose maybe this is what Isaiah was talking about? And Jeremiah comes along and says, Hey, I think this might be what Isaiah was talking about. And Ezekiel comes on later and says, Yeah, this is what Isaiah was talking about. It's a paraphrase. It makes for shorter chapters. What if the difficulty that we find ourselves in is actually part of God's good plan to orchestrate all of our circumstances in order to rescue us from ourselves? Then the discomfort we may feel may actually be a good thing. 
because it may remind us who we are and who our God is. Having been distracted, the Israelites have forgotten. Having been distracted, we find ourselves forgetting. Why? Given who you are, verse 12, given who you are, how can you forget? Look at yourself. You were once not a people, and now you are a people. Once you were not a nation, but now you are a nation. How, and how did that happen? Who you are is evidence of who I am. Look at us. We're Gentiles. Gathered in this room to worship the living God. Having been saved by a Jewish Messiah, as we were reminded last week. Brothers and sisters, who we are is evidence of who He is and what He has done. How can we forget? How can we be afraid of all the protests that we hear around us? And so, having lost sight, we accuse God of betraying or abandoning us. Most of us know better than to actually use those words, but functionally, we betray or abandon Him. Several weeks ago, several weeks ago, um, some of you, many of you, I think, um, went, traveled just a little bit north to see the eclipse, 100% eclipse. It was pretty amazing. I did not get to go. I got to um, see a um, 99% uh, eclipse, and that was kind of cool, but it didn't get as dark as I thought. And so I thought, hey, what's everyone talking about? But then those who saw the 100% eclipse came. And you can imagine, and perhaps you even had these conversations because of our natural inclination to frame things in this way. Whoa! Where'd the sun go? And so we panic. Dude! Someone took the sun! Did you take the sun? I didn't take the sun. Somebody had to take the sun. It was there a minute ago. That's unjust! We all deserve the sun! Who took it? And so we protest. And all of this because a simple question based on a foundational misconception based on who we are and where we stand of our circumstances. From our vantage point, it appears that the sun has gone, that someone has stolen it, and that we've been deprived of our warmth. But in fact, the sun has not gone anywhere. Something has come between you and the sun that is hindering your vision and experience of the sun. Brothers and sisters, the lies of the world even as we were reminded this morning, 
the lies of the world generated by the enemy of the world are successful to the extent that we believe them and are distracted by them and so lose sight of our Father who we think, therefore, has left us. But He hasn't left us. We've believed lies and we've been led astray by lies. Now, brothers and sisters, please hear me. This is not unique to me and this is not unique to Isaiah. This is exactly the same sort of dynamic that Paul has in mind when he writes this in his letter to the Colossians. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The if doesn't make what has gone before true. The if is... It helps us to understand the, the implications of what has gone before. It is true, notwithstanding. Paul later writes this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, on the, not on things that are on the earth. If it's true that you are a part of the redeemed, then no, our God reigns. Our Christ is risen and reigning supreme. Remember who you are. This is exactly what Peter says. In his second letter, Peter writes this. If I can find it, forgive me. In his second letter, Peter writes this. Whoever, he goes, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the next phrase. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see what's going on here? It's not that the great work of the Lord depends upon us recognizing it, but it's that the great work of the Lord is constant and present and unchanging. He is faithful to his promises. It is by our distraction to the lies that we are blinded to His work. When we lose sight of our Heavenly Father, we lose sight of who we are and who the people around us are. We lose sight of the fact that we are objects of our Father's continuing steadfast love. And so we live in fear and suspicion of those who are around us. And thus David, when he arrived at the battle lines to see Israel cowering in fear before Goliath, said, why are you afraid? Who do you think that man is that he can stand against the army of the Lord? Oh, David, you're so naive. 
David continues, you cower in fear because you have forgotten who your Lord is. And you have forgotten who you are. Think of Joshua and Caleb who said to, the, said to the tribes of Israel and to the other spies, who do you think that they are that they can defend themselves against the armies of the Lord? You cower in fear and protest in anger because you have forgotten who the Lord is and so who you are and what His promises to you are. Having lost sight of the fact that we are objects of our Father's mighty and steadfast love, we also lose fact lose sight of the fact that we are his, our agents of that continuing love in His world. The fact is, there is real injustice in the world. There are real micro and macro aggressions. There, regardless of the extent to which we are aware of it, or even our, or, our, or even our participation in it or not, racism, for example, is a real issue that we as a nation must address And regardless of what you think of your your obligations as citizens of these United States, as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, we have an obligation to address these things. Because not only are we objects of His affection, of His love, of His justice and mercy, we are agents of His love in this time and in this place. That's who we are because that's who He is. And as agents of His love, just as Christ, we take on the name of the oppressed. We take on the name of the least, the lost, and the lonely. We step between the oppressed and the oppressor to absorb the oppression with and on behalf of the oppressed. We speak out. We cry out. We stand up with. We kneel with. We weep with the oppressed sometimes even giving up our rights, sometimes even giving up our life. Because, brothers and sisters, that's who we are. Because that's who He is. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you in the shadow of my hand. I have established the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and I have said to Zion, You are my people. Jesus, we read in the Gospel of John, knowing the Father, knows who He is, knows where He has come from and where He is going. And so He gets up from the table to serve even His enemy. He endured betrayal, False accusation, a fake trial, intimidation, brutality, whipping and scourging, humiliation, and finally crucifixion. The habits of feeling, thought, word, and deed put on display by Jesus that night, knowing the Father, serving the disciples, including the one he knew would betray him, including the one he knew would deny him, including all the others he knew would abandon him, and enduring alone all of these false accusations and the false trials. All of this we are to understand as the holiness of God's love. That's who He is. And so that's who we are. 
the righteousness by which we have been saved and to which we have been called. We can only truly and confidently know who we are and what we are to do in this world at this time and this place when we remember who our God is, what He has done yesterday, what He is doing today, and what He will do tomorrow. All to the praise of His glory. The key to protesting or not protesting well is knowing the key to knowing when to protest and what to protest and how to protest, whether in our society, in our school, or in our home, is knowing our Father, that He has not left us, He has not abandoned us, He has not left us on our own, He has not betrayed us, He has not forsaken us, but He remains steadfastly, unchangingly committed to fulfill in us and through us the promises that he has made to make all things new in Jesus. So let's go to him in prayer.